um, any Star Wars fans out there, people that like Star Wars? Okay, a couple hands. Well, not as many hands as I expected. Okay, all right, okay. Well, this may not work since there's just a few of you, but I'm going to try it anyway. So Star Wars has a lot of iconic lines, you know, lines that people like to quote and that end up on these gifs and memes and things like that. Um, anybody have a favorite quote? Luke, I am your father. I am your father. Yeah, that's an iconic one. You don't serve your kind here. No, you don't serve your kind here. That's right, speaking of the droids. Yeah. May the force. Yeah, I knew that was a Star Wars thing. What else? I had one that I used with my children frequently growing up. My daughter was rolling her eyes at me. Do you feel like you've been treated unfairly? <laughs> Darth Vader says. <laughs> Fairness was a relative concept in our home. Do or do not, there is no try. Yoda, good, good. Anything else? Well, to tie this into our lesson today, so that it's not just uh, pop culture here this morning, um, in the very first episode, the very first scene, so the first episode is episode four, weirdly enough, but the one that came out in the 70s. So we have um, Darth Vader's ship is attacking um, a Rebel Alliance ship. They board it, and you, you're introduced to a main character, Princess Leia, and she is with this little droid, R2-D2, and what does she say to the droid, or more indirectly to Obi-Wan, Help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Exactly. That's at the end of this long speech that she makes. And she is looking to Obi-Wan for help. That's who she turned to. She turned to a Jedi, and she says, you're my only hope. And it was personal. It's my only hope. It's not our only hope. Today, we're going to be talking about help. Where does help come from? And where did David and Saul look for help. And in our two chapters this morning, 27, we're going to see David seeking help. And in 28, we're going to see Saul seeking help. And we're going to see some remarkable similarities, which we've often seen contrasts between Saul and David, but we're going to see some similarities today. And then we'll see some differences as well. But seeking help is an important concept in Scripture. Because often we see in Scripture that God brings His people through a desperate situation to a point where there's nothing else they can do by themselves, and He is their only hope. He brings them to this point so that they will say, God, You are our only hope. You are the only one we can help, we can seek help from. You are the only one who can save us. That's the point that God has to bring a sinner to before they can accept Jesus as their Savior. That they have to be able to say, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone. And each of us as believers need to be brought to this point on a daily basis where we can say, God, I need you to help me in my trial. I need you to help me in my, with my problems. I need you to help me in my life. I can't do this by myself. 
And when the child says to the parent, I can't do it, what's the parent's, re what's the parent's reaction? Well, too bad. <laughs> no, the parent is, let me help you. And that is the attitude of our loving Heavenly Father. And He's waiting for us to get to that point. And what, we've, what we see with David is he kind of is at that point and that he's not at that point. And that he's at that point and he's not at that point. And this is the guy that God calls a man after my own heart. And yet he has a lot of learning and a lot of growing to do. And that's really encouraging to me because I'm not always at that point. And I have a lot of learning and a lot of growing to do. And I suspect that some of you do too. So we'll see in chapter 27 where David seeks help from this time. Now let's just do a little quick review of, of David's little history of interaction with the Lord. We're introduced to David um, as a boy being anointed by Samuel. And then in chapter 17, we have the account of David and Goliath. And what does David say, iconically, about fighting a giant? He says the battle is the Lord's. This isn't my battle. This is the Lord's battle. God's so much bigger than this giant. This is not a problem. He evidences incredible faith in his great God. He shows a great view of a great God. In chapter 21, after he has been assaulted, after he attempted murder by Saul, he runs. He's scared. He's scared of the king. He runs to Nob. He resorts to lying to the priest there. He doesn't seek God that we're told. Chapter 21, at the end, he flees to the land of the Philistines, to Gath, and to the king whose name or title, we're not sure if it's a name or a title, Achish. And he, David realizes he's made a mistake, and he resorts to deception. He you know, starts drooling, acts like he's a madman, and he, it works for him. He resorts to deception. In chapter 23, we see, you know, David has been kind of like, you know, he kind of peaked at Goliath and he kind of is going down spiritually. And now we see him going back up <clears throat> and he's in the wilderness um, and the Lord and, and Saul is seeking him and he seeks the Lord when he hears news about the town Keilah being raided by the Philistines. He seeks the Lord about whether to go and he seeks him again about whether the, um, the residents of Keilah will turn him over to Saul if they're asked. And he accepts that. In chapter 23, we see Jonathan come and encourage him in the Lord. He strengthened him in the Lord is what it says. We see him kind of increasing in his spiritual growth. And in 25 um, and tw 24 and 25 and 26, we see he repeatedly spares someone's life. Saul's life twice in 24 and 26, and in 25 he spares Nabal's life. And he evidences a biblical worldview in these chapters, and especially in his dealings with Saul, because he calls him the Lord's anointed, and he says, you know, who am I to take the life of the Lord's anointed? That is God's job, not mine. We get to the point in chapter 27 that we need to read verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. So after all of the running, all of the stress of looking over his shoulder, 
I don't know how long this has been that he's been in the wilderness, but it hasn't been 10 minutes. This has been months, if not years. All of this seems to have gotten to him. He is being worn down by this trial that won't go away, and it's caused him to take his eye off of God, and it's focused on himself. He's looking at his own situation. He's feeling sorry for himself. He wants a break from the trial. He wants for it to be over. This is an easy reaction, very human reaction to a difficulty or a trial that we see. So David rationalizes leaving Israel in verse 1. So who is David talking to in verse 1? Himself. He's talking to himself. He says in his heart. So who is he following? Himself. He's following his heart. Now, where have you heard that before? It's not in the Bible. (laughs) It's Disney theology, right? Follow your heart. It will never lead you wrong. No, the heart is desperately wicked. It's going to lead you wrong all the time. Don't follow your heart. Follow God. His heart is telling... What is his heart telling him? What is it? I mean, it says here what what it says. I'm going to perish one day. Was that Jeff? Yeah. He's going to perish one day. So essentially he's saying, this is just a matter of time. This is like my luck's going to run out kind of thinking, right? And you can only roll this dice so many times before it comes up snake eyes. This is kind of how he's thinking here. what, What is he leaving out of this equation? He's leaving God completely out of this equation. That God has saved him repeatedly from the hand of Saul. And God will do in the future what he's done in the past. God will prove himself to be faithful. He thinks that Saul is going to catch up to him and kill him. And what does he think, what does he say, that is better than dying? He actually uses the word better. Yeah, there's nothing better than I should just go to the land of the Philistines. Well, is this what God wanted for him? I don't know if you remember, I've forgotten the chapter now, but there was a prophet named Gad, and what did he tell him? The prophet named Gad said, stay in Judah. And now he's going to the land of the Philistines. So what is David implicitly saying about God, or what is shown about his view of God here? He knows better than God. I know better how to take care of myself than you do, God. This isn't the right place for me to be. Ooh, we don't say that out loud, right? (laughs) But we say it by our actions like he did. What else? That God can't protect him? That God won't protect him if he's in fear of his life? He's got to take care of himself. That God may not keep his promise to him. Now, if, if I was questioning David with those things at that moment, he would probably say, no, 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 I, I, I'm not saying that. And that's what we would say. That would be our response because we would never want to say that we were leaving God completely out of our equation. But that's really what's going on. So if we could pull that metaphor out of last summer's lesson, you know, who's on the microphone on the stage of David's mind right now? It's Mr. Fear. He's afraid. And his fear is driving him to do things that he wouldn't have done if he were 
focused on the Lord instead of himself. So he seeks refuge among God's enemies rather than in God himself because he listened to himself rather than seeking God. So he goes and he seeks relief in Philistia among the Philistines. In verses 2 through 4, it says he takes his 600 men and their families and his wives. And I'm just wondering, how does this conversation go when he shows up at Gath and he knocks on the gate and says, I'm here with my 600-man army? Or maybe he doesn't use the word army. <laughs> but that's pretty clear. I mean, these men are armed. And he says, you know, we'd like to stay in your area. You know, how is this not met with force? You know, I mean, these are Israelites. I, I don't, I just, we're, we're not told this. In verse 5, it says, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let, it, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Ziklag. So I, I don't think that little conversation is the first conversation, because it says David had found favor in his eyes. I, I'm thinking, how did he find favor unless there was a little bit of time that had passed and he had proven himself? But anyway, he goes to Philistia and he asks to be given a town. He negotiates for a town. So this is a little bit of a serf and master kind of relationship that he is giving. And he, um, it's, so he's, he's kind of a mercenary is the feeling I'm getting, that he's selling his services of war in exchange for a place to live that is safely away from Saul. So David gets this place to live. Achish gets some military muscle. He, um, he acts humble here. You know, I don't deserve to live in the royal city with you, Achish. We don't know if this Achish is the same as the last Achish. If that was a title, it might not be the same person, but it could be the same person. If it's the same person, what is this guy thinking? <laughs> you know, is this the crazy guy that was here before drooling in his beard? I don't know, a lot of unanswered questions there. Total rabbit trail, sorry. But David is acting humble, but he really wants a city that's a, a town that's a little out of the spotlight. He wants an office by the back door of the building so the boss can't see him coming and leaving and not know where he's going. He doesn't want the accountability of living right there with them all the time. It says in verse 7 that he lived there for 16 months. So, long period of time that he lives at Ziklag. So, here we see David relocates out of Judah into the land of the Philistines. He stays there for 16 months. What does he do while he's away? Well, he does what mercenaries do. They attack people. They make raids. In verse 8, it says, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. So he is, he is like focusing on the south, south of Ziklag, um, south of the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were near the coast. Israel was more inland. And so he is focusing south instead of east. So he's headed in that direction. Now, these three people groups that are mentioned here um, one, the Gerzites, the only time they're mentioned in Scripture. We, we don't see them mentioned anywhere else, but the other two are mentioned in Scripture. These are part of the historic Canaanite tribes that God had said to Joshua to completely obliterate. And he had said to him at the time that that would happen over time. 
through a process. And so what we see here is David, I don't know if it was conscious or if it was unconscious, is actually fulfilling God's command to Joshua way back when. Because in verse 8, it says that David goes in and puts everyone to the sword. It's brutal. This is, without that understanding of God's intention and God's command back to Joshua, it's hard to understand morally what David is doing. He leaves no survivors because dead men tell no tales, right? So he doesn't want any word getting back to Achish about what he's doing. Well, why does he not want Achish to know? Well, because he wants Achish to think that he's actually going and fighting against Israel. Well, why would he want that? It's a word that starts with L. <laughs> loyalty. He wants Achish to think that his loyalty has shifted from Israel to the Philistines. And so he says, um, in verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? And you know, David's reporting in. David would say, against the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Jermalites. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Or against the Negeb of the Kenites. These are people groups within um, Israel. And David would leave neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell, us, tell about us and say, so David is done. And so this is what he does so that he would build trust in Achish. In verse 12, and Achish trusted David, so it worked. Thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, and therefore he shall always be my servant. He believes that David's loyalty has completely shifted onto his ledger. It shifted into his favor and that he owns David, essentially. That David is going to be his, his hired gun. So here's what we see about David in this short chapter 27. Now, what about, what about Saul? Oop, I missed a slide. There you go. And we'll move on. So chapter 28, David, or Saul seeks help from a median. So David sought help geographically. Saul seeks help from a person, and that is from a medium. A medium is someone who purported to mediate between the dead and the living and you know, bring, uh, bring the dead to life, so to speak, in a spiritual sense. And there's a lot of theories about this, but probably involved demonic activity primarily in order for this to occur. It may have involved imagination as well. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that the Philistines are preparing for war. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are, are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So, so, when, so we see that this preparation for battle against Israel, and we see this conversation between Achish and David. And what does David actually say to him? He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. What does that mean? I think this is intentionally ambiguous on David's part. He did not say, you're going to see me take down a bunch of Israelites. He doesn't say that. 
He says, you're going to see what I can do. There's an implied, you will see me take down a bunch of Israelites, but that's, I don't think, what David is intending. And as a matter of fact, the Lord spares him from having to do that. We'll see that next week. So we have a large battle being mounted, and um, as a result, there's an effect on Saul. In verse 3, he becomes desperate. It says, now Samuel died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. What? Why are we talking about Samuel here? He died in chapter 25. Why, why is this important, if you know the story? It's important because it's foreshadowing. Because we're going to see Samuel again. He's going to pop up, so to speak, in this chapter. And then the next part of the verse says, And Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The necromancer is someone that deals with the spirits to, to foretell the future. How a dead spirit can foretell the future, that is kind of a head-scratcher to me. So Saul had put these mediums and head... And <laughs> mediums out of the land. This was actually something that God um, would have been in favor with back in Deuteronomy 18. Um, mediums and necromancers were called an abomination to the Lord. God did not want the people of Israel listening to what someone else said to do. He wanted them to listen to what he said to do. So we see these two little elements of foreshadowing, Samuel and Amedian, and they're going to come together in the rest of this chapter. We see that he is unavailable here because he has passed away, and we see that Saul is told, Saul is, Saul is being characterized in verse 5 as being fearful. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. He knew that this was a serious problem. He knew that this was that the Philistines were a formidable force and that they were gathering and he needs to get his army together. In verse 6, we've got to give Saul a little bit of credit here. He tries. Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So he inquires of the Lord, but the Lord is not answering him. He had not listened to the Lord before, he had not obeyed him, and now God is not listening to him. It's a really sad story. None of the three methods of communication that were known to them about communication with God were working for him. And Saul said, says to his servants in desperation, seek out, a, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go and inquire of her. And remarkably, his servants know right where to find one. If, if all these people had been put out of the land, how do they know, and you know, maybe there's some time lag here, right? you know, I'm being a little facetious, but it's like they're able to find this person for him fairly readily. This medium that he goes to evidently had survived his purge um, and is somewhat known in the underground so that he is able to go. So in verse 8, he puts on a disguise, and at night he goes with two of his servants he has a clandestine visit to the median. Now, the median has her guard up. I mean, she didn't survive this line this, this long by being foolish and just letting any, any person walking in wanting to, you know, talk to a spirit, you know, find out about it. And Saul says, you know, pull up a spirit for me, whoever I name to you. He doesn't say at this point that he wants to talk to Samuel. 
And in verse 9, the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She thinks that he is you know, putting her up to this so that he can ferret it out, get the evidence, and turn her into Saul. She doesn't recognize that this is Saul at this point. Verse 10, this is ironic. Paul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So he had been putting out all of these mediums from the land in accordance with God's command. And now he says, I won't do that to you, and I swear it by the Lord. I think what we're seeing here is that Saul doesn't understand how God works. Saul doesn't have a high respect for God or his name. He looks at him more as a lucky charm, a tool to be used, and he's using it here. He looks at using the Lord's name as a trump card to show that he's serious, but he's actually not connected to the Lord at all. This evidently is enough to convince the woman to, um, to go along with this, and she says, who do you want me to bring up? And he, he says, bring up Samuel. So she does whatever she does. And in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and she said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Okay, how, how did she know, first of all, that this was Samuel? And how did she know that he was Saul at this point? We're not told those things, but at least one of the commentators that I looked at thought that the result of this was that what she saw, which evidently Saul couldn't see, because he says, what did you see? What she saw wasn't normal for her. So she saw something like real, <laughs> as opposed to something fake, like she was used to, and this startles her. Another thought was, and this is from Josephus, Josephus said that when Samuel appears, he says Saul's name and identifies Saul, and that's how she knows. So there's some speculation in there. We don't know completely how that happened. His, Samuel's appearance, as the woman describes it, is pretty generic. Said she's In verse uh, 14, she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. So we have an old man in a robe, and of course that's Samuel. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty generic description. It probably could represent 20-25% of the population of Israel, probably, I'm guessing. But whatever characteristics, I think there's probably details that we're not given here. She knows that it is Samuel, and this is enough for Saul at this point. He didn't even ask if the robe had a piece torn out of it <laughs> to further identify him. He is confident that this is Samuel, and perhaps it's because he wants it to be Samuel so bad because he needs some advice. We don't know exactly that. So that brings up a question that biblical scholars have debated for centuries, and that is, was this really Samuel's spirit? And we don't, I can't give you a definitive answer, but there are some indications in the text that, um, that makes me think that it probably was, that the Lord in his wisdom, chose to use this instance to to speak to um, to speak to Samuel um, to speak to Saul in this way using Samuel's spirits. 
spirit singular. And I was going to read you something from a commentary, and I'm having trouble pulling it up, so I'll skip it. Um, there's, a f there's a few alternative views here, and you know, some of them say that it was a, you know, a demon impersonating Samuel. I, I have trouble with that because of what Samuel actually says, and the fact that the text says a couple times that it's Samuel. Verse 12, when the, when the woman saw Samuel in verse 14 in the middle, and Saul knew that it was Samuel. So I think it was, other people don't, that's fine. Whatever it was, let's look at what, um, at what Sam, Samuel says. For, Samuel forecasts death and defeat. I think when, when Samuel is talking here, that, that is evidence that it probably is him. So Samuel says, well, let's just, let's just read the conversation, then we can comment. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do, what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? So, so what we see with Saul is that he has an incorrect view of Samuel also. He's looking at Samuel as being able to speak and things happen. And it's like he's not understanding that Samuel's just a conduit. Samuel is transmitting what God has going, is said is going to happen, not what Samuel thinks is going to happen or what he wants to happen. So he says, you know, listen, I'm on God's side. So if God's not talking to you, I'm not talking to you either. So he has turned from you. In verse 18, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. So he's also telling him, listen, you and God are not on the same side. You are not, um, you are not God's friend. You are God's enemy at this point. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. He's saying God has kept his promise. God is faithful to keep his word. Keep reading. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it, given it to your neighbor, David. That should sound familiar from a few chapters ago. He has torn the kingdom away. God has given the kingdom to your neighbor. And this time, not the first time, he actually names who the neighbor is. And it's David himself. And so, Saul, here's why you shouldn't be surprised about this. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So he's saying, listen, you didn't obey. You didn't carry out God's fierce wrath. I, I, I love and cringe <laughs> at the way God's wrath is described here. It's fierce. He protects his word. He expects obedience. So that's why the kingdom is being torn away from you. Oh, and one more thing. Moreover, verse 19, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. What is he saying there? You're going to die. Yeah, you and your sons. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines, and then, is, then Saul at once fell length on the ground, filled with fear. You think he was afraid before? He's really afraid now because he has Samuel tell him that tomorrow he's going to die. 
<clears throat> so Saul is terrified at this. I'm wondering if he wishes he hadn't gone. I'm wondering if he wishes that his, you know, not being able to live without the knowledge of what's going to happen would have been something like, oh, I wish I didn't know what was going to happen <laughs> because it's really pretty difficult. This woman in these last verses, the woman is afraid now too because he's afraid and she's thinking fearful people can be irrational and so she reminds him of his pledge. He has been fasting and so she gets him to eat and his servants eat and they go away into the night, verse 25, and she put it before Saul, that's the food, and his servants, and they ate and they rose and went away that night. The fitting end to this chapter, dark. It's dark in Saul's life. It's dark in Israel. In 29 and 30, we'll see next week about how God brings all of this to pass. All right, so I mentioned at the beginning that there were some parallels and some differences between David and Saul. So one of the parallels, first of all, is that we see that both David and Saul have fear. They're both afraid. They're afraid of similar things, actually. What are they afraid of? Dying? Dying? Is that what you said too, Barb? Yeah. More specifically? Dying and dishonored. Dying and dishonored. Okay, that's more specific. Anything else? The unknown. The unknown of this. I mean, they, they, it's, it's like death is like the end result of this fear. But in the middle is like, I mean, they know they're going to die sometime, right? But when and how and by whom? Is this going to happen? You know, is Saul going to catch David and kill him? Is, is Saul going to, to die, you know, falling down the stairs? Or is he, you know, is he going to die honorably in battle? <laughs> that unknown piece, I think, is hard. And fear of death is hard. And you put those two things together and it's like X squared. It's really difficult. And what are, what are they missing here? They're missing that death is not something that a believer needs to be afraid of. This is hard truth. It is something to be dealt with carefully. But when we know the Lord, we know that absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if we die... We're with God forever. Well, sure, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound so bad. It's the experience that I'm, I'm scared about. I can appreciate that. I can, I can appreciate the difficulty with that and the effect on other people. This, this focus on death and the unknown shows a continued self-focus, a focus on how I am going to be affected by life circumstances, not how God is going to be revealed. It shows a failure to understand God's presence. Over and over in the last 10 chapters, we have seen David as being described as God was with him. The Lord was with him. Back when we were looking at those, we were reminded of Joshua. And at the beginning of his um, conquest of Canaan, God said to him to encourage him to make sure that he didn't fear, don't be afraid, because I am with you. 
And when God is with you, there's no problem that's too big. There's no trial that's too long. There's no difficulty that is too difficult (laughs) that God doesn't know and God doesn't understand and that God can't take care of. And so if those kind of trials and that persistent unknown in our life is, you know, just plaguing us, what can we turn to? That God is doing something here that I may not understand right now, but it's for his glory and our good. Another parallel is that David and Saul both sought help from outside of God's plan for their lives. David seeks it geographically outside of Israel. Saul seeks it from a median. In fairness to Saul, verse 6 of 28, he tried, apparently. It says he, well, let's just look at it. I'm going to misquote it if I don't. Verse 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, he asked God, what should I do, evidently? I'm putting a little bit of words in his mouth. I don't know exactly what he said. But God, at that point in his life, had closed the door. He wasn't listening to Saul anymore. This is terrifying, (laughs) that God would close the door on someone and say, I'm not going to listen to you. So what can we learn from, from this? That believers in a trial, in a difficulty, in an unknown, something that's terrifying, should seek both protection and advice from God not from other sources. When we seek advice, it shouldn't be from a median. Well, I would never do that. I wouldn't go, you know, to have my palm read or something, you know, crazy like that. But where are we getting our advice from? Is our advice coming from God's Word? Is our advice coming from godly people in our lives? I think to myself, at this point in David's life, he needed Jonathan again. He needed Jonathan to come to the wilderness and say, what are you doing? Why are you going to Philistia? You are going to reign in this country, and I'm going to be right next to you. That's what he said before. didn't work out that way. But he encouraged David in the Lord. He strengthened him on the basis of God's promises, and that's what good friends do. Good friends point their troubled friend back to God's promises. Now, too often, when we're the recipient of a friend doing that, we're like, I know that. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. And we push away the people that can help us the most. It's a really human reaction. At least I hope it is, because this is something that I find in my life. They sought help from the wrong places. And they they both sought to solve their own problems. They came up with their own solutions. This kind of autonomy and independence is not what we see in Scripture as being a mark of a dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ. People that try to solve their own problems. They fail to depend on God. Ultimately, if you peel this all the way back, this is a faith problem. This is a problem of trust, that they were putting their trust in themselves and in other things rather than putting their trust in God. So this little picture of David is a little disappointing. Some of the commentators, I will say, in fairness, are much easier on David than I've been this morning. But I would say that this is not what I would expect from a man that's described as having a heart like God's. 
But David was a man just like we are. He stumbled in trials. This should be encouraging to us. But he didn't just lay there and wallow in it. He didn't keep going down. He didn't double down on going the wrong direction. And that's what Saul did. He turned to the Lord and he sought God's help eventually. The difference between the two, David didn't get help from God because he didn't ask. Saul didn't get help from God because he didn't obey. There's a big difference here. The obedience problem was a, a big problem. And so we see this main point of our lesson this morning is that a man after God's own heart stays where God puts him and seeks God's guidance. And so I, ask, I, I give that to you to take away today and to ask yourself, is this mark my life in whatever trial I'm going through right now, big or small? Am I staying where God put me that I know to be true? Am I relying on his promises? Am I seeking his guidance or not? This all, um, studying these two chapters made me turn to Psalm 23. It made me look at that and say, when did David write that? Did he write that? I've always imagined this. I don't know that it's accurate. I don't know where I got this, somebody told it to me, or if I just thought of it as a kid. I always imagined that David wrote Psalm 23 when he was a teenager, sitting in a field, taking care of the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God taking care of every problem for him. But could I leave you with two thoughts that, um, that David should have been thinking if he had written this before these incidents? In verse 4 of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. There we see it again. God's presence eradicates fear. When we are afraid, we need to run to God's presence. That's the answer to fear. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He's in the presence of God, enjoying God's richest blessing. And these, these evil men, you know, so to speak, are around him, enemies lurking, and he never felt safer because he was in God's presence. His conclusion, surely confidence, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever presence, his presence with God forever. That's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you give us a candid view in scripture of both heroes and villains, that you don't sugarcoat how David lived, that you give us the, the, the truth about that and, what, and then to teach us from it. We're encouraged this morning to walk with you through the example we see in the lives of David and Saul. We ask you to bless now our worship in Christ's name.